You're listening to the Groundswell Sermon Podcast, a brand new church in the Halton region, Ontario, Canada. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Been looking forward to this, especially since it's the first Sunday of Advent. I'm uh, I'm a bit of a Christmas freak. Um, we set up seven miniature villages in our home every year, and uh, I'm actually writing children's stories based on one of those villages. So I'm having fun with that as well. Um, and then um, we have a Christmas tree on each of the three levels of our house. So we, we really love Christmas uh, a lot. And uh, I'm like a kid at Christmas, although my wife would say I'm like a kid 365 days a year, which is okay because we're told to come to Christ with the faith of a child. So I just figured I'd carry that on for 365 days of the year. Anyway, just before I start, I thought I'd have a little bit of fun with you, and just one thing, just so you can get to know me just a little bit. So here's a true or false statement about myself. You have to guess whether it's true or false. So you're allowed to shout things out in this church, right? So here it goes. So true or false, I still need a comb. True, you say. Well, it is true. It's just that my comb looks different than most people. I, uh, I actually had an elder in one of the churches that gave that to me as a Christmas present. We're no longer friends. <laughs> so, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay, one more, and then we'll get started. Um, true or false, when I lived in Saskatchewan, um, my, and I was younger in my, in my teens or my early 20s, now, by the way, just because I'm giving you detail doesn't mean it's true, right? But anyway, my brother and I were part of a Christian rock band in the 70s. True or false? I mean, what, I, I don't look like a rocker? Is that, is that what you're saying? It was true, yes. We had, a, we had a rock band, a Christian rock band, and we got to sing in all kinds of churches and in youth uh, concerts in a prison, in, uh, in the parks and all that kind of stuff. We had a great time and a great ministry. It was, uh, it was wonderful. Our band was called Heaven and Earth, and uh, so it was just a local band in, in uh, Saskatchewan, and uh, it was great just to be able to give concerts like that and then also give our testimonials and, and that kind of thing, so that was wonderful. Anyway, enough about that. Today is uh, the first Sunday in Advent, uh, where we prepare to celebrate the, the first coming of Jesus, God the Son, who came to Earth as a child about 2025 to 2030 years ago. And so I'm going to be speaking to you from a series entitled The Christmas Story, The Greatest True Story Ever Told. And today's chapter in this series is called The Grand Announcement, where we're going to be looking at Christ's coming through the eyes of, of two prophets who lived between seven and 800 years apart. And I, I trust that after you know, hearing the story that your hearts are going to be 
really bursting with gratitude toward the God who loves you without end. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, as we look into your word, as we um, just build a story around it, I just pray that we, our hearts would be just completely open to what you want to say to us today. And as we participate in communion later, I just pray that you'll just have everything just flow just seamlessly so that we can just interact with you and intersect with you at the deepest possible level. In Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah's chapters 7 and 9, the prophet Isaiah writes about a special child who will one day appear. And the first example is in chapter 7, verse 14, which Brian read, where it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then jumping to chapter 9, Isaiah continues to re reveal more about this child, saying, there, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, meaning God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then jumping to verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Centuries before it actually happened, Isaiah spoke about a child that would be born sometime in the future. He was very clear, though, that this would not be an ordinary child, but one of royalty. And to describe the character of this child, Isaiah gives him these five magnificent and significant names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Emmanuel, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of course, four of those names we read in Isaiah 9 and the other Emmanuel in chapter 7. Now, what makes those names so significant is that they are names that this child absolutely deserves. In other words, Isaiah isn't exaggerating here. He's, he's not using these names to flatter this royal child as was often done by other countries in the ancient Middle East when they spoke of their kings. They would kind of give them this, this lavish kind of flattering to, to speak about their kings. So anyway, but these five names are, are crucial to our understanding of the identity and character of the child in Isaiah. And as we know, Approximately 700 years after Isaiah wrote those words, that royal child was born, but in the most humble of circumstances, in the little town of Bethlehem, in a stable surrounded by animals. His given name was Jesus. 
which means God is salvation, the one who would save us from our sin. Now, the other five names in Isaiah reveal more about his identity and character. So let me set the stage for those five names. Now, first off, I want to take a few minutes to look at the Bible reading where most of these names for Jesus occur. So that's Isaiah chapter 9. I want to do that so that we can understand the context in which they were given. So let, let me set the scene for you. Isaiah began his ministry as a prophet around 740 B.C. Now, eight years later, in 732 B.C., the Assyrian king, Tiglath Pileser III, and his army attacked the ten northern tribes of Israel. Two of those northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, were situated close to the Sea of Galilee, and they were also among the tribes closest to the Assyrian border, and therefore they were some of the first tribes to suffer the brunt of Assyria's initial attacks. Now the Assyrians were noted for their cruelty toward those they conquered, and as a result, they caused tremendous fear wherever their armies roamed. And that's in part why they were so powerful. In fact, after defeating an enemy, one of the things the Assyrians would do is they, they would deport many of them, dispersing them throughout their empire. And then, having deported most of the conquered enemy, the Assyrians would then move other conquered peoples into those lands, just displacing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And this way, no enemy would be strong enough to get revenge. And of course, that's exactly what happened to the Jewish people living in Zebulun and Naphtali. Many of them were shipped to other parts of the Assyrian Empire and other non-Jewish residents took their place. And 700 years later, when Jesus walked the earth, this area now called Galilee was still heavily populated by non-Jewish people. Now, wh why did I give you all of that background information? Well, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, the writer delivers this wonderful message of hope. And what's interesting is this. Isaiah says that those living in the area that used to be called Zebulun and Naphtali, later to be known as Galilee, will now be among the first to experience the reality of that message of hope. Look in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. In the second sentence, we read this. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor, and this implication here is this same area which will come to be known as Galilee of the Gentiles. So Isaiah says, yes, the area that first suffered the brunt of Assyrian attacks in the past will also be one of the first to witness something absolutely wonderful. Now anyway, having introduced where the message of hope will first be realized in the northern kingdom of Israel, Isaiah then begins to explain the eventual benefits of this coming hope. And in verse 2, he calls the hope a light that will lead people out of despair and darkness. Now, up until now, we don't really know who Isaiah is talking about. He has only described this coming hope as a light and has tied the coming of this hope to an area called Galilee. But then in verse 6 of chapter 9, he gets very specific 
And the language he uses in describing the hope to come is very important. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the idea here is that God is going to give this gracious gift to mankind, this overwhelming, wonderful gift. And this gift will come in the form of a human being, a child, to be born. But this won't be just any ordinary human being or child. This is going to be a royal son. And as I said earlier, one who is able to absolutely and unequivocally bear all the responsibility of governing wisely. But Isaiah is not done describing this child. He next describes the kind of royal person this will be, and he uses four wondrous names to describe both his identity and his character. And these four names, at least in the context that they're being used here, are names that belong to God alone. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Isaiah is telling us that the hope to come will be God in human flesh. And then, of course, the other word, the fifth word found in Isaiah 7, the word Emmanuel, confirms this reality because Emmanuel means God with us. Well, Isaiah ends this discourse in verse 7 of chapter 9 by describing the length of this child's rule. He says it will be universal, it will be endless, and it will be peaceful. Isaiah says he will be the only true ruler the only one able to govern with absolute justice. And you know what? People won't be upset that there's no longer democracy because he will be the absolute righteous ruler governing in perfect harmony. And all this will happen, the Bible says, because it is God who will accomplish this. So that's the context where these five names appear. Now fast forward 700 years and Jesus is born who is also called Emmanuel. And we know of course that he grew up in Nazareth and later lived at Capernaum. Both communities situated both communities situated in Galilee, the area that was once populated by two tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. We also know from the first four books of the New Testament that Jesus spent a large part of his ministry in Galilee, traveling from town to town, teaching and healing the people. And then finally, in the book of John, he is also called the light of the world, which is another confirmation of Isaiah's words in Isaiah chapter 9. So it's in Jesus that these prophecies in Isaiah 7 and 9 come true. And then fast forward another three decades and Jesus' ministry begins three decades after his birth. And as many of you know, it's recorded for us in the four Gospels and what I'm going to do is I've combined everything in those four Gospels and I've just been thinking about the sights and the sounds and the smells and everything that we would have seen and heard and here's my telling of this part of the story based on those four books. So if you haven't, that's something else you need to know about me. I'm a storyteller. 
three days or three decades after Jesus' birth, a fiery preacher from the desert appears on the scene. His name is John. He's preaching a message of repentance and hope. Over time, crowds begin to gather, both the very rich and the very poor. Men of learning, merchants, farmers, artisans, tax collectors, and soldiers. Women of high standing and those of a lower social status. Children, too, are everywhere. Some clutching at their mother's garments. All of them, young and old alike, stand in awe. Gazing at this wild-looking man standing on the bank of the river. It's like they're gazing through a window 900 years in the past to the time of another great prophet of God, Elijah. Like his counterpart before him, John's lifestyle, clothing, and food are simple. It's just a protest to the self-indulgence of his time. His hair is long, his appearance unshaven. His roughly sewn tunic is made of camel's hair, and an uneven coarse leather belt is tied loosely around his waist. His only nourishment locusts and wild honey. Not a DoorDash or Skip to Dishes favorite today. As the people stare at John, listening intently to his forceful message, a large number of representatives from two powerful religious sects suddenly appear. And they are neither repentant nor desire the forgiveness of God. Now, if they were there to be baptized, it was only because it was the politically correct thing to do, because they're here to impress, to show off, not to repent. They think everyone else may need to, but not them. So turning, their atten- turning his attention to them and their unrepentant hearts, John points his finger at them in a loud voice, enough for all to hear, he shouts, You brood of vipers, you self-righteous religious leaders. You think that just because Abraham was your father, because you were born a Jew, that you're a child of God? That's a lie straight out of hell. So beware, anyone willing to repent before God and produce fruit or produce a lifestyle in accordance with that repentance, everyone unwilling to repent before God like that will be cut down and destroyed irrespective of their nationality or the home that they grew up in crowd is stunned. Few have ever dared to speak to their religious leaders like John has just done. But then, one by one, all kinds of people from all walks of life break from among the crowds, push past the religious leaders, and enter the water to stand by John and be baptized, turning their hearts from a life of sin to God, seeking forgiveness in anticipation of the Messiah that is to come. In heaven, the angels stand poised, ready to break out in song, because the Messiah is about to appear. Now, because of John's dynamic preaching and prophetic utterances, many begin speculating that perhaps, just perhaps, He's the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah. But to each of these inquiries, John replies, no, I'm not the Christ. My words are to prepare you for the one who is coming after me, to point you to him, 
I baptize you with water, but he, ah, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit and with fire. His baptism will save, it'll purify, it'll cleanse, it'll refine, it'll bring you into the very presence of God, it'll bring the Spirit of God into your very soul. And so as the days and weeks continue, John faithfully resumes preaching this message God has given him, urging those who will listen to prepare themselves for the one who will bring good news. And then one day, while baptizing at a ford along the Jordan River, he sees a relative of his on the bank near the shore. It's Jesus. What's he doing here? John thinks quietly to himself. He remembers the stories that his mother and father told him of Jesus' miraculous birth, a birth far more spectacular than his own. He recalls that Jesus' knowledge of the scriptures was exceptional even as a young child. And once again, he's wondering, why is he here? Before he can question it any further, though, suddenly Jesus enters the water, lining up behind those who are awaiting baptism. And I can just see John being startled by this. He continues to baptize, but I assume he's distracted by the presence of Jesus. And finally, they stand facing one another. John feels very uncomfortable, although he's not exactly sure why. This is not right, he says to Jesus, glancing about nervously. You don't need my baptism. I should be coming to you. Immediately, though, Jesus responds softly to John, putting him at ease. No, John, you're wrong. You and I need to fulfill all that God requires of us. You may not fully understand what I'm saying, but I know you can sense from God that this needs to be done, so do it now. Humbly, John consents, and with great reverence, immerses Jesus in the flowing waters of the Jordan. And as he comes up from the water, Jesus begins praying. And suddenly he looks up, the clouds separate, the heavens are torn apart, exposing a huge hole in the clouds, which signifies that a cosmic event is about to happen. John, too, looks upward following the direction of Jesus' gaze. And unexpectedly, something like a white dove bursts through the gaping hole, descending with amazing speed to the earth below. And it, when it comes nearer, though, slowly its speed decreases until it quietly and gracefully descends, finally coming to rest on the shoulder of Jesus. Almost immediately, a mighty sound is heard thundering from the clouds above. It's a voice so rich and deep that there is nothing that could compare to it. And the words are directed not only at Jesus, but for the benefit of the crowd as well. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Luke 3, 22. Those who hear the voice tremble. Time appears to stand still. It's as if they can't believe what they have heard. John, too, is very still, oblivious to the flow of the Jordan. I can see his mouth hanging open. He's in shock. Why? It's the dove. It's the sign he's been waiting for. All these months he's been preparing for this moment, and now it's here. The words that God spoke to him previously are being fulfilled before his very eyes. 
the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Those were the words that God had spoken to him when he first began his ministry, and now it is happening. Before John can react, though, Jesus exits the water and slips quietly away. Now jump ahead 40 days later. Jesus has been in the desert defeating Satan as the devil tries to tempt him. John is standing by the road leading into Bethany. It's a favorite resting spot of his. Two of his followers are with him. During their conversation, John notices Jesus meandering toward them. Look, my friends, he says, excitement building in his voice. Behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. John's followers are captivated by his words. They're struck by the deep significance of that term. Lamb of God, that speaks of divine forgiveness. So their interest is stirred. So much so that they're prompted to investigate further who this Jesus is, and so they follow him. And three years later, at the cross and at the empty tomb, they discover that he is indeed the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and Emmanuel, God with us, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And thus ends today's story, taken from various passages in the Gospels. I want to conclude with this. According to John Ortberg, author of the book, Who is This Child? He says that when Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was thought to be the most important person in the Roman Empire, the known world. And at one point, he was considered to be divine, and he was given the title, Son of God. When he seized power and ended the civil wars, he brought peace called the Pax Romana. Because of this, he was also called the Savior or Soter of the people. And then at his inauguration as emperor, this announcement was declared as good news throughout the empire, the same term from which we get the Christian word, gospel. Yet in reality, there was only one person truly worthy of the praise, Son of God. Only one person able to bring true peace throughout the world, both literally or internally and eventually externally. The one whom Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace. The only one person able to lay claim to the term Savior of the world. Only one person bringing the good news of the gospel. And that was Jesus, the one whom John the Baptist referred to as the Lamb of God. The one worthy, the only one worthy to die for the sins of humanity and to bring us back to God if we would but choose to accept this gift of Jesus. 
And so if you know him as your Savior and Lord, may your hearts truly be filled with this deep inner peace as you live your new life in him. And may your heart be filled with with gratitude because of what he has done for you and what he wants to continue to do in you as you follow him. And if you're someone here who's still searching, I, I pray that you'll end your journey by accepting him as your Savior and Lord and discover this wonderful new life awaiting you and this beautiful new relationship with God that provides this deep inner peace that is really indescribable because it's a peace that can exist even in the worst of circumstances. So may God bless you as you continue to celebrate the birth of Jesus during this month. The one who is called not only the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world, but also wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and Emmanuel, God with us. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to uh, read those words in Isaiah and in the Gospels of the wonderful gift of your Son. Those magnificent six names that we looked at today that give us just a small taste of who Jesus is. And I just pray that as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion now, that those six words will just resonate in our hearts. And especially that last one, Lamb of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Groundswell Podcast. For more info or to support Groundswell, check out www.thegroundswellchurch.com. Grace and peace.